Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual members-only program of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Michelle Miao, host and producer of the Michelle Miao Show on KBCW and podcasts, also a member of the Board of Governors for the Commonwealth Club of California, and will be serving as your moderator for today's program. This program is being held in association with Ascend, the largest nonprofit pan-Asian membership organization for business professionals in North America. You can learn more about Ascend at ascendleadership.org. The Commonwealth Club, of course, has shifted from in-person programs to virtual events, and we are grateful to all the supporters and our viewers. We appreciate you considering donating to the club, and so if you wish to do so, please click on the blue Donate button at the top of the YouTube chat box or visit the website at commonwealthclub.org. We also want to remind you to submit questions for our speakers today, and you can do that via the chat room right next to your screen, and I'll try to get to as many as I can later in the program. And now it's my pleasure to introduce to you the program this afternoon, Anti-Asian Hate and What You Need to Know. We keep hearing these horrifying and heartbreaking stories. An 84-year-old Thai immigrant from San Francisco died after being violently shoved to the ground during his morning walk. In Oakland, a 91-year-old senior was shoved to the pavement from behind. An 89-year-old Chinese woman was slapped and set on fire by two people in Brooklyn, New York. A stranger in the New York subway slashed a 61-year-old Filipino-American passenger's face with a box cutter. The only Asian-American lawmaker in the Kansas legislature says he was physically threatened in a bar by a patron who accused him of carrying the coronavirus. Sadly, it almost feels like these stories are being reported almost daily. The advocacy group Stop AAPI Hate says that it has received more than 2,800 nationwide reports of hate incidents directed at Asian Americans since the pandemic began. More than 6 million Asian Americans live in California, by far the most in the United States. Of the 2,800 reported uh, or reports mentioned, more than 1,200 incidents occurred in California and over 700 in the San Francisco Bay Area alone. The U.S. Senate has overwhelmingly approved bipartisan legislation aimed at strengthening federal efforts to address hate crimes directed at Asian Americans. So what should we all know about these hate crimes and what are the steps we each need to take in order to prevent them? Today, you'll hear from a compelling group of speakers who have personal and professional perspectives. I'll introduce our other panelists in just a few minutes, but first let me introduce you to our panelist, Anna Mock, who's the president and co-founder of Ascend, as well as a partner of Deloitte and Touche LLP. She's also a past chair of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors. Anna's work at Ascend has focused on economic and educational access for diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace and in society. Anna was also the first Chinese-American female chairman of the United Way Bay Area. So we're going to begin our conversation this afternoon with a brief presentation by Anna to set the stage for today's discussion. Anna, take it away. Thank you, Michelle. And thank you, the club, for co-hosting this today with the SEN. This is such an important conversation for us as a community at large, but definitely for me personally as a member of the board 
And as a member living in San Francisco, living every day with what Michelle just referenced. I'm going to briefly just give the audience some context, and then we'll turn it over to join the panelists and dive a little bit more onto this topic of anti-Asian hate. Uh, for those of you that don't know Ascend, next slide. Uh, Michelle already talked about us being the largest pan-Asian business organization. It's really about us helping build leaders that can make an impact in society. And so what I'm going to share with you is really perspectives of what we've been talking to companies about and talking to the public about um, the subject of anti-Asian hate. Next slide. Want to really get to the root cause of this hate, and it's about racism. And racism against Asians is not new, even though using the word racism and Asians in the same sentence, at least in the US, has not been something we commonly think about, but it is definitely not new. And you can see from these images and you can see from our history that this is not a new phenomena, unfortunately. Next slide. There has been systematic racism against Asians since the beginning of when we first started setting foot in this country. And those of us in California know about the gold rush and know about the fact that so many Asians and Chinese at that time came to this country to help us open up this country. We toiled in the mountains doing work no one wanted to do, yet it was the same group that was excluded as part of the Chinese Exclusion Act, barred, massacred, kicked out of towns. And you see those towns littered across our state. And those acts of exclusion and discrimination have continued into impacting other Asian groups that you see on this slide. Next page. The Japanese internment during World War II. And the word of interning or internment camps is really a gentle way of calling what were essentially concentration camps. Now, the Japanese weren't, Japanese were not necessarily killed in these camps in record numbers, but they did lose everything. And they were the only group in our American history in connection with World War II that were being blamed for the war and put into camps. And we see that again in more recent history in the 70s when the Japanese automakers were rising here in the US and they were one of our biggest trading partners. Yet Japanese and were being blamed for taking American jobs. And Vincent King, a Chinese American was brutally murdered because he was mistaken for a Japanese. And then the LA riots, a billion dollars almost of Korean owned businesses were burned and damaged. And many Korean Americans lost their livelihood as a result of what happened in those LA riots. And post 9-11, our brown skinned Asians, people, Muslims, Indians, were being blamed for 9-11 and being criminalized. So systemic racism against Asians is not new. Next slide. 
this context of villainizing Asians has, again, been there since the beginning of our time in this country. And you can see these images, how, how Asians have been portrayed and called the yellow pearl threats to society. Next slide. All of that converges in the last few years, what I will consider multiple pandemics. We are in a health crisis still, even though cities in the US are opening up. But as we know, in places like India, we're still deep in a health pandemic. In this last year, with the killing of George Floyd and so many others, clearly a social injustice pandemic. And then definitely xenophobia and anti-Semitism has been plaguing our, our society. And we see that in spades in this last year. Turning to the next slide. There's no question that the pandemic has disproportionately impacted many different communities, in particular, Asian Americans. And you can see some of these numbers. Many Asian Americans own small businesses and are in the service industry, in fact, represent 25%. And that, that industry has been very hard hit. Also, there are many uh, small businesses that are run by Asian Americans, and 74% of those are actually immigrant-run. And immigrants don't have all the access, especially newer immigrants, to all of the technology and all the resources. And if you walk through Chinatown, San Francisco Chinatown, and any of the Chinatowns, you can see the ravage that the pandemic have caused. And then the coining of the term China virus and Kung flu has clearly led to, or at least prompted, much of the hate we see going on. Next slide. Michelle shared some of the numbers, but here's actually some recent numbers that were just released. There were 30, almost 4,000 cases of hate reported. And we know these numbers are underreported because many of us don't report these hate incidences uh, for the period up to February, 2021. Just in March alone of 2021, there were almost 3,000 cases. One month, almost 3,000 cases. In the cases against women, there's two-thirds more cases reported against Asian women than men. So definitely Asian women have been very largely impacted by this anti-Asian sentiment. Next slide. I always like to say hate doesn't have boundaries. The coining of the China virus or Kung flu did not only impact Chinese Americans. You can see from the numbers that actually over half of the reported crimes were committed against non-Chinese and committed against Asians of other ethnicities. Next slide. I like to share this because while the rest of the country in 2020 actually saw a drop in hate, a 7% drop, hate against Asians actually increased triple digit. And these are the most recent numbers, 287% increase in hate crimes against Asians. So opposite than what you'd expect. Next slide. 
I also like to remind everyone that hate is just not a San Francisco phenomena. Scapegoating and xenophobia impacts all Asians. You can see from these headlines, it's not limited to what I'll call East Asians or yellow skin Asians. It impacts all Asians and it's happening all across the world beyond the Bay Area and beyond California. You see that in countries like Canada, the UK, Australia. So clearly lots of anti-Asian sentiments all over the place. Next slide. I'd like to take a moment and just have us read the names and pause on the individuals who lost their lives just in recent months. These are individuals with families, with kids, with friends. They were all killed and brutally murdered as a result of hate. And these are the Asian Americans who lost their lives. Hate and bias and racism comes in many forms. While I won't have a lot of time to dig deep into what's on this slide, it's important for people to know and understand the concept of the model minority myth, which we'll talk a little bit more about later. This myth has created, was created to say Asians are the good minority, which implies all other minorities are the bad minority or not as good. But it also has created a situation where people perceive all Asians as being successful. But you can see that that's actually not the case. Not only are parts of the Asian American community on the lowest rung of the economic spectrum, even in corporate America, where I spend most of my time and in the workplace, Asians are the least likely to be promoted. And there's a huge gap behind how many Asians are in the workforce. In places like STEM, it's almost 30% of the STEM workforce are Asian Americans. Yet when you look at the executive ranks of companies, when you look at the corporate boardrooms, it's nowhere near those numbers. So I like to say there's an illusion that has been created about Asian success. I'm gonna have people just take a read of all these things that are impacting our community. I talked a little bit about xenophobia and scapegoating and the model minority myth. All of this is coming at a time when all of us are still dealing with COVID. When we're all, many of us are living in multi-generational households, we're worried about our families, we're worried about our kids, we're worried about needing to go back on public transit because I might need to go to work as things open up. And we're still worried about, in many cases, family that may be far away back in Asia and other places. So all of this is impacting all of us as individuals, maybe impacting your employees, maybe impacting your friends. Thank you, Anna. Thank you so much for the presentation. And now I'd like to introduce to you the rest of our panel. Mohammed Shadri is managing partner at Mac Capital Partners and the president of Ahmadiyya Muslim Community, Silicon Valley. He previously served as founder and CEO of the Silicon Valley Education Foundation. Under his stewardship, the foundation became the leading education resource preparing students for college and careers. 
He also serves on several philanthropic boards, including Re Religion News Foundation and American Leadership Forum Silicon Valley. We also have Mina Kim, who's the host of the 10 a.m. statewide hour of Forum on KQED. Forum places a particular emphasis on issues of race and equity. Before joining the Forum team, Mina was KQED's evening news hour anchor, uh, I'm sorry, evening news anchor and health reporter for the California Report. And David Nanetta, he's a noted mental health advocate and son of former Congressman and Transportation Secretary Norman Mineta, who was in a Japanese-American internment camp during the World War II. David has been the president and CEO of Momentum for Mental Health since 2015. He previously served as deputy director of demand reduction for the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy, and prior, prior to that was deputy director of Asian American Recovery Services. So welcome, everyone. Thanks so much for taking some time out of your afternoon. We'll pick up right where Anna left off. Anna talked about uh, the concept of perpetual foreigner uh, and even model minority myth. Maybe we'll share you know, how this has impacted you or continues to affect you personally and professionally. We'll start with David. Thank you, Michelle, and uh, thank you, Anna. Thank you all for um, uh, this uh, the opportunity to be on this panel this uh, with with Mina and with Mac. Um, actually, I'd like to start with a with a with a personal story where the, sort of the intersection of the uh, perpetual foreigner and model minority. Uh, if I can, I'd like to use uh, my father as an example. Uh, again, um, thank you for the kind introduction, and proud to be. Uh, uh, dad's uh, son, one of one of four, um, but uh, when he was running for mayor of San Jose, he was mayor of San Jose. He's a congressman from San Jose. Uh, you know, again, presidential cabinet member. But when his career was starting off in San Jose, he was in a field of about fourteen folks running for mayor in San Jose. And I remember this. I was about eight, and um, pretty exciting time. Um, councilman, vice mayor, uh, possibly mayor. And so um, he won. And wow, that was great. Really exciting. Uh, we woke up the next morning and someone had spray painted Jap on our garage door. And as an eight-year-old, uh, I recall, you know, distinctly feeling the humiliation of of having that spray painted on our garage door and having our neighbors drive by and, and, you know, people I go to school with and all. And, um, so much so it was hard for me to, you know, go into the garage after that for, for a while. It just didn't feel safe. It was, um, um, it was humiliating. Um, and, uh, so even as, you know, this, the first, uh, Asian American mayor of a, of a major, you know, U.S. city, uh, mainland city, uh, you know, we couldn't enjoy it because of this racism and, and hate and violence. And um, I asked dad recently about that incident. And I said, do you recall that? And, you know, he did. And he just said he just had to keep, keep trucking, keep, you know, keep moving forward. Um, but he, you know, he recalled it. And I asked him if anyone had come to our house or had talked to us in the neighborhood um, to show support or anything. And he said, no. And I asked my mom this recently as well. And she said, no, no, it was pretty quiet. Um, 
And I think it says something about allyship now uh, with these incidents happening all over the country is, um, is we don't stand alone. We don't let people stand alone. People are not alone. Well, David, I just want to say I'm, I'm so sorry to hear about that incident and the fact that I, I know that it has had a lasting impact on you. And when I think about, you were asking about how sort of some of the ways that Asian American racism, anti-Asian racism manifests with regard to perpetual foreigner, foreigner or model minority. And I was thinking about, you know, it's the perpetual foreigner one in particular is something that I think gets reaffirmed every time you're asked where you come from and you give an answer and they want to know where you really came from. Or, um, you know, I've, I've had incidents growing up where I was told, where I saw my parents being told to go back to their countries, even though the U.S. was their country. And when I thought about this question, I couldn't help but remember moving here from Canada. I moved to California when I was in fifth grade. I was 10 years old. And I remember when I got to my new fifth grade, I was called out and given an English test. I was given an English as a second language test. And if you didn't hear me earlier, I moved from Canada. <laughs> so um, it was really one of those experiences that stays with you. I think it made me really hyper aware of how I sound, how I speak. Maybe a sound effect of that, uh, a side effect of that was that I eventually went actually to a profession where there is a lot of sound and speaking going on. But, um, but it really does stay with you. You're reminded very early on about how you're seen and that you have something that you constantly have to prove. And it's a difficult thing to grow up with. Thank you for sharing that. Yes, born and raised here in the United States and have, throughout, I guess, the 39 years that I've been around, always get asked, <laughs> where are you really from? And actually compliments of, you You do speak English. I do. <laughs> uh, Mohammed. Uh, I think those are wonderful stories from David and Nina. Um, I think I'll give, I'll share two stories from a slightly different perspective. One is my experience as an Asian American Muslim. Uh, and and um, after 9-11, you know, air travel had changed forever for all of us. But imagine if you were Muslim um, and your name and how you, how you get pull, uh, pulled aside. I distinctly remember when they were counting off you know, every five they were checking is about a month after September 11, 2001. And um, um, they let people, two other individuals that looked just like me go, and they picked the five, fifth person who was a Caucasian male, cleanly shaven, and he just reacted. He was like, wait, you're going to pick me over them? Um, um, where's, where, um, why are you doing this? So that whole experience. And, you know, fast forward, I kind of got in, um, I've been involved in the, in the conversation around Islam, I mean, I'll never defend terrorists, but there's a difference between terrorism and Islam. And I appeared several times on Fox News, which in some ways was the kind of lion's den for, or for what everything that's wrong in the world is because of Muslims. And understanding that and working through that, and I wanted, I wanted to have those conversations. Now, what I realized is that as you have those conversations, it's not just uh, for some groups, it's, you know, ignorance, you know, this is others, they're very clear, this is a Judeo-Christian country, you don't belong here. Um, stop, stop sharing that information. 
um, you'll go back to go back to where you came from, uh, wherever that is. Um, but also, there's an organized campaign which I'd love to talk about a lot uh, for, for a lot of these things. I I think it's not just coincidence that all the stuff that Anna talked about. So that's on the one side. On the other side, you know, in my role, um, where I had the pleasure to serve as the Silicon Valley Education Foundation, we looked at a lot of data. And we looked at data between um, the achievement gap. between, And it largely, it reflected Caucasian Americans versus African Americans and Hispanics. And there was a 30-point gap. The piece that uh, the group that was never talked about was up here were Asian Americans. There were 10, 20, 30 points above Caucasians. And, and in some ways it was looked upon, oh, that's great, They're really, their families value education. But in other ways it was looked upon like, wait, wh wh what's wrong here? Why, why are they up there? That there must be a bias. And, and there's all these other questions that came up uh, for us to even have those policy conversations uh, forced us to think through that there's, you know, um, there are unconscious biases uh, in schools, but also um, it's not about race. It's about how, how do we provide a better education for everyone. So, so I, I think it it's a lot more and it, it exists in lar a lot of larger institutions, whether subtly or overtly. And um, I think we can explore those things. Yeah, great point. And we will get into systemic racism and how the institution of it all. But you bring up a great point, Mohammed. in kind of there's a it's a it's a diverse way of talking about the anti hate and racism. It's not just one conversation that we're having. And so the responses are varied when it comes to acknowledging anti Asian hate and racism. For example, uh, if we talk about law enforcement and, and, you know, how did they define or what constitutes as a hate crime? They go by legal language. It's not necessarily so so black and white. How do you all address uh, anti-Asian hate? How do you talk about it and acknowledge it among your own community members and peers and even family members? Um, Anna, we'll start with you. I realize being in business that actually many weren't talking about it because we didn't want to bring some of these sensitivities to the workplace because we didn't want to actually, many people don't want to be viewed as different, especially Asian Americans, right? Many of us come to this country believing deeply in the American dream, which means that we believe deeply and want to believe deeply about full acceptance. So we store away uh, the story that Mina shared, right, about her English language. We store away these microaggressions that happen to us at work that are the roots of it is just misperceptions, right, and stereotypes that frame us, that impact us. And, and so what I've been doing is to get people through audiences like this, getting to company by company and encouraging the Asian Americans to share their stories. Because if we don't share, people don't really understand these experiences we have. So even if we have people that want to support us and help us, they don't know how to. So we have to share, that's one. And then secondly, I've been taking the principle of getting back to basics 
I've realized while those of us on this panel may understand the Asian American experience and a little bit this history of racism, actually most don't. Most Americans don't. It's not taught in schools, it's not taught and covered in media. So there's a lot of misinformation around. That's why actually we love inviting Mina to this conversation because her show really was doing a lot around getting more information out to the public. And I think the education of the larger public on these issues is so important because until we get educated, until we understand the stories, we can't really make change. And so we have to do all this all in, all in simultaneous lanes. And we have to work it in many different channels, right? In the workplace, in, in politics, in society. I think Mina is a, um, the next person that we should ask to answer that question because there's also a question from the audience um, that asks, is media coverage of anti-Asian crimes helping or hurting the situation and what role should media play? So we'll start, Mina, with kind of how you're talking about the anti-Asian hate and racism um, and then maybe if you could also expand and, and answer the question from the audience as well. Uh, sure. Well, one of the things that I'm thinking about when you immediately asked earlier, Michelle, about how we often go to official language, like we'll wait for we'll wait for the law enforcement designation or the investigation to be completed before we define anything as a hate crime or racially motivated, and and only at that point will we engage with the racism question. And while that's a very important thing, and in media we are very you know very careful about facts, for example, I don't think that. Um, one of the things that we learned through this process is that you don't need to get hung up on waiting for the official definition to address what is clearly a truth in the community. And the truth being that a community is going to feel terrorized, is going to feel like they are in great fear. They're going to have a whole bunch of emotions that come up that we can have a conversation around, which is what we try to do on our program. And so that, that I think, is one way that the media can play a role in making sure that we don't have the kind of experience that David talked about, where, where nobody acknowledged the trauma, the horror, and the terrible act of spray painting a slur on somebody's um, garage, and in so doing, just compounded that sense of trauma of not feeling like what happens to you is, is um, fully understood, appreciated, reinforced, but instead minimized, questioned, and, and you're asked to sort of wait for some kind of official determination to, as to whether or not you should take it seriously. And so I think that that's a really important thing uh, that we have come to realize, not just with things that affect Asian Americans, but racist acts against all kinds of, all people, races and ethnicities and identities. And so um, that is one way that we've tried to work around that. And then the, your second question from the audience was what again, Michelle? Yes, it was, is media coverage of anti-Asian crimes helping or hurting the situation? And what role should media play? I think it really depends on how it's done, right? One of the things that has been very clear is that just the constant barrage of information about these crimes, about you know, people posting videos, people posting headlines, people posting killer images, all of those kinds of things, those things don't help. But reporting on it and treating it as someone something that we should take seriously as a society absolutely helps, in my view. Mohammed? 
How are you talking about anti-Asian hate and racism in your world? You know, um, there's there's a couple of ways. And, you know, as sad as um, uh, David's example um, were or are, I feel privileged to live in Silicon Valley where I think we have come a long way as well. Um, I do have now, perhaps through... uh, you know, I think social media came by a little late, later as well, David. And and with social media, at least some folks, you know, do reach out and, and they 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 share their sentiment and support in, in different ways. Um, and, and perhaps that's that's a little easier to do. But you know, um, I think opening doors. Um, there's the data, and then there's how, how we make people feel. Um, on one hand, in every conversation, the. Uh, it's hard for me to have this conversation without uh, without mentioning our former president. I mean, uh, I see direct correlation and perhaps go as far as to say causation um, and in having that conversation. But on the other hand, what? how can I bring down barriers? I'll give you an example. Um, as a Muslim, we just have the month of Ramadan where you fast uh, for 30 days and the, as the joke goes, yes, not even water. Um, uh, is the is the fasting month? But what I've noticed is, you know, we before the pandemic, we'd have these iftar dinners and invite the community to just come see it, come experience it, um, and um, and hear some bad Muslim jokes around how hard it is to fast. But but also um, what we saw was individuals that a lot of my friends uh, would say, "Well, I'll fast with you for a day. I'll let me experience this." Um, by the way, this is something that was from all religions. Uh, it's not just a Muslim thing. Um, that's just one example of sharing the experience and opening doors uh, in order for folks to really understand. And um, I think um, data only goes so far, but it, it's connecting with folks uh, in a human level uh, uh, helps a lot. And David? I've started at least uh, probably, you know, closest to us within our family and then have worked out uh, at work and then out in the larger community. Uh, so, you know, where these conversations have, have gone, though, is, is worry about your own relatives. So please stay home. Don't go out on walks. Do not walk alone. Um, and, you know, and it's been more precautionary. Um, then at work, you know, in that larger concentric circle, um, you know, at, at work, uh, we had, after the George Floyd uh, murder, we had s- uh, started a, a, a diversity, equity, inclusion initiative at work. And uh, we added um, uh, uh, sort of talk groups um for black and brown employees. And we have recently added uh, talk groups for uh, our Asian um, employees uh, after these attacks. And, um, and then working, you know, with, with Anna and, and Mohammed in our uh, American Leadership Forum, ALF, uh, we have an API caucus and we've been doing, um, I think really, really good work with other, other caucuses um, it's not just the API caucus, but the Black caucus and Latinx caucus, um, other other communities that are also coming to support. So um, one is, I think, in API month, I think it's really incumbent upon us to keep talking and educating as best we can. Uh, I think uh, Anna's slides were excellent. 
and we need to get that information out as far and wide as possible. So Anna, you, we, we went a little bit through um, you know, a couple slides talking about anti-Asian hate and racism as systemic. You know, this word comes up a lot, and I think we can, we can repeat it over and over and over and over, and we must because that's part of the education process. And so why don't we share examples of how uh, anti-Asian hate is systemic and you know, share also what worries you about the potential of it evolving into more violence in the future, or it continues to be this cyclical pattern that we are all talking about in the future. Yeah, I, I go back to, again, there's so many aspects, right, of the, the causes of hate, including our history. I'll go back to the concept of the model minority, because ultimately it is a stereotype and it's systemic because we forget it was created in the 60s as a wedge between communities. It was put out there right at a time when Japanese Americans, you know, post this concentration camp experience, were trying to get fit in and accepted. So it was almost a social pack out there that said, if you do this and you do this well, we will accept you as a white adjacent. But then other groups, what's wrong with them? And why aren't you doing better? So by nature of that construct, it actually pits people of color against each other. So if you think about that in this broader context, right? So the people of color could systemically (laughs) be at odds and lose sight on really how do we make society better for all. Does anyone want to add to um, you know, sharing some samples of the systemic racism or how anti-Asian hate is systemic? I think, Mohammed, you, you had some great points, especially in the education sector. And I'd love for each of you actually to share some samples from your own profession. Mohammed. You know, I think it's systemic in the sense that I'll, I'll give a, a Muslim example, an education example. In the, in the Muslim example, as there was this extremism and as it, you know, I think the last four years, um, the, the uh, travel bans and things like that happened, um, you would think that, oh, you know, this bunch of rogue individuals who feel this way or maybe it's one, one crazy leader uh, that's doing this. But then when you really dig into the data, this is by Pew, there was, um, for the past five years, there's $50 million a year spent on anti-Muslim disinformation by organized communities, 50 million per year. So it wasn't, it wasn't random. So it, it is systemic. It's not just a, 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 oops, some people thought that uh, got up and walked down the street and was irritated or a rogue individual, you know, you hear all these terms that uh, we deal with the Muslim community when, when someone with uh, a name like Muhammad, which is the most common name in the world, um, does something bad, it's instantly terrorism. And if it's, if it's not, and if he's not Asian, and if he, um, uh, and if he's Caucasian, then those individuals somehow become lone wolves or just having a bad day. Uh, and, you know, you just hear those examples over and over. And then, you know, this is not blaming media. This is just, I think it's become this, this thing that we've looked at. On the other side, in education, it's a lot more refined. It's a lot more um, uh, 
we have a lot more data on it as well. Just to give you one example on that side, uh, we look at this back to this achievement gap. You know, um, so if the students who are off the bottom, well, well, maybe their parents don't care, and the student, and then, and so you you look at that and you go, come on, how many parents do you know do you know that don't care about their child's education? But the unconscious biases, there's data, there's proof around that, uh, particularly in education. And this is kind of setting you up for the rest of your life. Um, there, you know, um, um, one example of that in seventh grade, if you get placed in algebra versus, versus general math, that changes your tra- trajectory all the way to college. That one decision. Um, and, and so many... Um, Asians and whatnot uh, get misplaced. So the, the systemic, and you know, um, I hope and pray that it's as unconscious, um, but it, it, it just exists in a lot of areas, and we can talk about policing, we can talk about many other areas. But for education, there's just so much data now that it scares me and scares me to have my kids um, go to school and, and what can I do to, to make sure they don't fall into those traps. Mm. We'll talk about some possible solutions towards the end of the program. Mina, would you like to pick up where Mohammed left off? Sure. Well, I'm thinking about what Mohammed's saying. I'm thinking about what Anna was saying earlier about the model minority myth and and how these things manifest and how they play out systemically. I mean, if if you're someone who's benefited from holding up Asians as a model minority, then you're invested in keeping the idea that Asian Americans don't experience racism that badly or cast it as an issue between racial groups uh, or non-white racial groups as well. And so that that is a way that it, it continues to show up, as you say, cyclically to some extent, right? But it takes these different forms because of these systems that already exist. You know, Mohammed was bringing up earlier, you, know, you can't um, you can't sort of deny or downplay the uh, effect of our, our former most powerful person in the country, right? I mean, if you have that person casting blame on a racial or ethnic group for the devastating impact on the U.S., a nation that you preside over, right, and trying to take attention away from your own mismanagement, and it works, if it works, then what, what, what's happening is reinforcing and exercising systems of racial power. And so I think that that's something that we're also seeing play out in a really big way as well. So just really hearing what folks are saying, making me think a lot about just the way we're all experiencing it now and how it's so tied to, to systems. Go ahead, David. Yeah. You know, I, I, um, I think it's so important that we see, you know, if past as prologue, I mean, if that is, if that is true, uh, then one one thing I think is really important that's sort of come about from this, though, is that there have been so many groups and people and individuals who have been prepping and working to educate and to, to push back, I think, on the cyclical nature and to be able to call it out. And the Stop AAPI Hate um, is, is such a great example Um one of the co-founders is a friend, uh, Professor Russell Jung uh, at San Francisco State. Uh, Russell has done a fantastic job with the other co-founder and then the other nonprofits, I think, because they knew it was coming. You know, past was prologue and they knew it was coming and they started collecting and setting up ways of keeping, you know, keeping track of the data. 
because of other incidences and cycles that have happened in history. And as a result, we do have these numbers now that the, these numbers are published by media all the time. They go to they go to the campaign to find out what are the latest numbers. Uh, the fact that March could be such a uh, watershed month, unfortunately, of so many incidents. And, you know, again, I think Russell has a fantastic um, uh, presentation and information slide deck on that. And one of the things that's always so powerful and what, what Anna just did a little while ago, just, just the names, but he's got something where there's just, he has quotations from many of the victims. And I think, again, this is, that information has to get out. That being said, David, there's a question from an audience member that I think, um, you know, you're touching upon. We say that, you know, a lot of our community leaders saw this coming. So the question is, do you anticipate that the easing of the pandemic restrictions will reduce anti-Asian hate? Or I guess overall, like, you know, if the pandemic went away, is it going, is this going to get better? Uh, anyone can answer this question, by the way. I don't think and well, only time will tell, there's going to be a reduction in number of crimes because look what happened when the numbers have continued to creep up as things have opened up. And keep in mind, we still have a lot of um, economic disparities in society, right? There's a lot of people who don't have jobs, a lot of people looking to understand why. And we have so many unknowns and there's still so many whys that will be left open even as we continue to open up. And at the same time, clearly different parts of the world are still dealing with the health crisis. So I think there will still be a desire for certain segments of our of society to try to find blame. And unfortunately, I think Asian Americans will continue to be part of the target so how that morphs, I think, is to be determined. But again, if March is any indicator, and I think it's going up because things are opening up. People are walking in the streets. People still feel liberated in spite of, you know, perhaps a change in administration. But these sentiments, again, while the last president maybe sparked it more, they have been in existence for a while. So they don't go away just because we talk about it in the month of May. And it's, I mean, it's the pandemic now, but it, it, it won't matter Un until we actually get at the root causes. It'll just be something else another time Un until this country is willing to have a really honest conversation about race. <laughs> I don't see, I don't see it maybe doing anything more than bringing the temperature down slightly, but. I, I, I would agree. I mean, I, I think that, that it, it's, you know, I, I feel like many of us are, are sort of wishful thinking every day, looking for examples of like, did, you know, oh, it, did, it wasn't reported today. Good. Um, but I think it's more wishful thinking, actually. Uh, and, you know, it's it's so important that we've we've said how leadership matters in all these bad ways we've seen, but leadership matters now in all these good ways we're seeing. And I, I would need to point out that our vice president is, is half South Asian. And 
uh, and and a woman, and where we've seen in Atlanta sort of misogyny and racism coming together. Uh, it's so important. Again, leadership matters. And um, fortunately, I think we're in a better space uh, right now. You know, I, I just to add to that, I think um, um, in the corporate world, I think we, a lot of us serve on various boards, um, corporate or nonprofit, and this whole California um, while there doesn't have any legal teeth requiring requiring non non white males uh, to to be on boards, um, uh, and how that influences the culture all the way down. For those of us that have served on boards, um, you can feel it, you can sense it. I mean, it's 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 uh, the best way to be on a board. Uh, the best the best way to get on a board is to be on a board. Uh, is as the saying goes, how do you, how do you crack those codes? How do you crack those clubs? On the on the other side, I think I totally agree with David in terms of leadership matters in the sense that um, there was an election where we voted for someone who was not overtly biased. I mean, I'm I'm being polite with my words here, um, and and it was okay for X amount of folks to accept that. And I think whenever there's fear, as Anna says, whenever that when we get our there's risk and fear. We fall back to wanting to blame someone. It's so easy. And to, to that end, until we have that honest conversation about race, until we can, we can really get beyond that, um, I think this is going to be circular. So if it's not going to be Asian, it's going to be another race. It, it'll just be a moving target. To your point, Mohammed, and many points that you all have been making, there's a question also from the audience uh, that kind of brings us to you know, talking about possible solutions or what we can do as a community at least. And that question is, how do we bridge the racial communication gap? Well, I can say that um, I, I do think there's a lot of power in conversation. I think one thing that I think is important to remember is that people feel so uncomfortable having conversations about race. These are, this is between communities of color and, and um, people of color and white people. It's 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 just one of those types of conversations that people don't want to get into. But the reality of the situation is that I found, and from my own experience of being on both sides of this, is that frequently when somebody is is coming to you and willing to share their experience or wanting to um, tell you about something that happened or uh, about something that they're uncomfortable with, maybe even in your own behavior, you know, the person that they're confronting. It is such an invitation into a conversation. It's not, it's actually, it's, it's actually a way of saying, I believe in our ability to have this conversation and our ability to build a bridge and our ability to be able to be better after it. And, and I think that maybe if we can frame it that way, to some extent, that could that could help with the sort of just those initial, those initial strands that, that need to be built between, between people. Yeah. I want to build on what Mina just said. And David had mentioned in his opening, how no one asked, right. When, when there was all those acts against his family. And that is something I still continue to hear every day that people haven't asked us, how are you feeling? What's going on? Can I help? And I think, so I've been thinking about the whys. 
And some of that is what Mina just said. I think people don't know always how to respond or they feel they need to have the answers, but I actually think you don't need to. It's really just engaging in a conversation first. I don't expect my friends or my colleagues to have the answer to help me fix or solve for all things about race. I really don't because I don't know the answers, but I do expect us to be able to engage in the conversation and try to go deeper on understanding where are some areas that we can engage on and work together on. I think because people don't know the answer and it feels so big and complex, we don't engage. That's one. And then secondly, I think as a society, we have to, and Mina said this earlier, we have to acknowledge that we have a long ways to go. We should not fool ourselves about that. And that it is not an Asian issue or a Black issue or a Muslim issue. It is all of our issue. What's happening now, we should all be concerned. Right? We should be concerned when my 88-year-old father is a prisoner in his home because we don't let him out because we worry about his safety. That is not an Asian issue. It's not an issue if you have a parent or you don't have a parent. It's a societal issue. And we have to accept that and call it out and all own that. And I don't think, I think we still are, are, are not quite there yet, but I, I'm optimistic that conversations like this help us get there. If I can just add to that, and I'll be a little contrary just to have fun. Uh, but I, I, while I agree, I think with all the information that's out there, it's hard for me to believe that someone doesn't know and therefore they're ignorant and they're doing these things. Uh, it's just hard for me to get there. Uh, perhaps I'm wrong. And to me, the solution really, I mean, unfortunately, is um, more technology than anything else. I mean, the camera phone has, uh, has revolutionized this conversation where we have real clear, indisputable data on what's happened, you see on 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 not not on radio, I mean, but on on TV. You know, we see all all these all these items and all these um, uh, hate crimes with uh, on camera, and then you can't dispute it. And I think, unfortunately, that undisputable evidence that technology can bring is is going to going forward. Hopefully, will either through fear or through, uh, hopefully it's through understanding and pulling them over as all of you are saying, but on the flip side, hopefully the, the stick of, of being caught and, and it's, it's not, uh, it's a little more obvious will hopefully help bring people to the center as well. Sorry, David, I just wanted to let us all know we've got less than six minutes or so left in the program or seven minutes actually. Um, so I think just spend a, a minute or so, each of you talking about what you would like for folks who are watching this or listening, that what their takeaway is, and also maybe a couple things that they could do differently tomorrow to, to address anti-Asian hate and racism. So I'll begin with you, David. You know, one, thanks, Michelle. One, I just, again, want to say thank you to, to just to, just what an honor it is to be on this panel and to Mohammed's point about just just the cameras, you know, being revolutionized and everything. I'm still in shock that I can see Mina. I can hear her voice usually, but now I can see her. It's so it's so strange, actually. But um, I mean, I guess one thing that I, I'd like to say is just this: that 
you know, for many folks, the the attacks have been anxiety producing, depressing, and it's affected many, many on a mental health and mental well-being level. And I feel like we really have to acknowledge that and see if there are ways of of supporting, you know, our relatives, our friends, um, you know, on a really personal sort of intimate basis. Um, people are very scared. They're, they're, they're literally scared. Um, and I think, you know, that would be one way of showing concern and, and really fighting back against, I, I think the, the, the net effect of the racism. Um, two is I think actually, I, I think, we, you know, in our DEI initiative at work, Part of it, the whole design is we have these conversations around race at work. It's around us. It affects our work with, with our clients and the people we serve. And we need to actually, um, and we need to, to get better. We need to serve folks better. And by having these conversations, we think we're, we're going to be able to do that. So again, where you can, I think it's, it's educate and keep talking about it. And again, in some ways to what Mina was saying is we have to have these conversations. Um, I would add though to, or maybe in hearing what Muhammad was saying, it reminded me of a conversation that I was having early on in the pandemic. This was in March when I think Stop AAPI Hate was just coming out and wanting to let people know that there was a place you could go to report these kinds of incidents. And I had zero interest in trying to have a conversation where I was trying to convince people that racism is real. I had no interest in trying to force people onto the show to tell me about their racial trauma. I was like, we are going to do a show that provides resources. We're going to say it's real and we're going to provide resources about it. Now, people want to share that. That's great, right? And, And But be exactly, you're absolutely right. You need to take care of that part of you when you know <laughs> you don't need to put yourself out on the line in this conversation to try to teach someone that racism or the racism that you're experiencing is real, because if they're not willing to be convinced at this point, that's not the point. I think the most important thing is to help people know that there are resources out there. There are people who will validate and believe what you have to say when, when something happens to you. And I also think that, you know, bystander intervention doesn't necessarily have to be somebody swooping in as a hero to stop some violent person. In fact, I wouldn't even recommend it, right, in those kinds of incidents. But the power of even acknowledging uh, after something happens, like that that was really messed up, like even if it was something like a, a harassment or or something like that, it is very powerful for people who are who are so vulnerable in that moment. And so I would just offer that. I was going to say something similar. I used the word, don't gaslight yourself into believing this isn't real and don't gaslight others by telling them it's not real. Uh, that happens every day to many people. And to Muhammad's point, become a student of race. The information is out there. There's no more proof points. Right? You don't. The, the, there's so much data and information out there. So it, hopefully you're not at a place where you need to be proven prove to that these things are happening. And I, I would just say that, I, well, I agree with, with everything that's been said and, and to accent the point around leadership matters. And, and, you know, one of the most powerful or feedback that I got was once there was a, a Jewish cemetery that was desecrated and the Muslim community in the area was first to respond and to keep it safe and to help fix and help clean up um, the area. 
um, and with all that's going on in the world in Palestine, Israel right now, I think it, those types of examples where we all need to step up for others uh, in order to in order to demonstrate uh, that we would be leading by example. Thank you all so much. We actually have three minutes left, and so um, very very quickly, would love to hear from each of you how you are taking care of yourself or you know trying to just kind of not, you know, take it easy, but also taking care of yourself. And what I mean by that is, of course, taking care of your mental health as well. Um, so we'll begin with David. We got a puppy um, and uh, uh, she is, Maddie is uh, eight weeks old. Uh, and so, yeah, we, we got a puppy. Um, you know, again, and uh, in the pandemic, it's like, really, we got a we got a dog for our dog. Let's put it that way. So um, anyway, and, and, and she has brought an enormous amount of happiness to our family. Yeah. Um, well, congratulations, David. That sounds like a great way of giving, of exercising self-care. I'm not so great at this. So I, was, I was hoping you wouldn't ask me next, but I will say that um, I feel really lucky to have the job that I have because I actually have a job that even as hard as it is to, to absorb the, the news and the stuff that's coming at you and have to be on top of it all the time, um, the fact that you have a role where you also feel like you're doing something about it on a regular basis, as hard as that is, is also incredibly healing sometimes. Um, I think this is what people talk about when they've been able to channel certain experiences into activism. My work isn't that, but it's it's just this sense of I, I do have the ability to, to do something around trying to address the broader issues. And that's really great for me. <laughs> Yeah, I, um, well, two things. One, I've really embraced this role of being an accidental activist. I didn't set off my career to do that, but clearly that has kind of been what has emerged and that actually has created so much energy and meaning for me and in turn given me a chance to really reflect on my contributions. But more importantly for this summer as my daughter is home from college so I get to go full force into mommy duty and clean up after her and cook for her. So I'm excited about that. Yeah, I love that so much. And finally, Mohammed. You know, I, I'm enjoying now that things are easing up to take uh, long walks. I invite all these panelists and others to take a walk and just chat outdoors uh, is one. The other thing is I'm a father of twins my son is not, uh, nine going on 10 and my daughter is nine going on 35. So I'm, uh, she's already running for president in 2048. Uh, she has her banner. So, so supporting her campaign will, it brings me uh, hopefully some hope. That is so incredible. I want to thank you all for joining us here at the Commonwealth Club of California for today's program. And also thanks to our entire panel, Mohammed Chaudhry, who's managing partner at Matt Capital Partners and the president of Ahmadiyya Muslim Community Silicon Valley, Mina Kim, host of KQED's Forum, David Mineta, president and CEO of Momentum for Mental Health, and Anna Mock, president and co-founder of Ascent. And of course, 
Thanks to you all again. Thank you to the Commonwealth Club of California. This program has been held in association with Ascend. Visit commonwealthclub.org for all of our programming and, of course, to support us. We thank you all, our viewers. I'm Michelle Miao. This is it. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.